Welcome to Future Work, the podcast where we bring you practical tips and insights on the ever-evolving landscape of work. Join us as we explore the trends, innovations, and challenges shaping the way we work today and tomorrow. Hey everyone, welcome back to a new episode of Future Work. Today we're joined by Renee Kida. Renee is a high impact human resource leader with over 20 years of corporate experience in Japan and APEC at companies like Google, GoTo, and IKEA. Some of Renee's many areas of expertise include project management, change management, diversity and inclusion initiatives, client relationship management, team leadership, talent management initiatives, and organizational development. Welcome, Renee. Thank you for having me. That sounds like a mouthful for sure. I don't know if I actually can, can live up to all of that, but I'll try my best. Well, we've spoken before, so I know you live up to it and probably it's leaving out on things. So, Renee, let's start on a personal note. How did you end up in Asia from San Francisco where you went to school and what has your career here looked like? Long winding road. Actually, it's not as winding as you might think. So born in Oakland, California, so the Bay Area. My major in college was actually Japanese studies. I went to Asia when I was a young girl of 15. I'd always been interested in Asia. Obviously, Asia is a very big place, a very diverse place. But way back in the 80s, which is, you know, before many people were born nowadays, I went to Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, and South Korea on a trip for five weeks. Back then, it was still the bubble in Japan and hard rock cafe and tight dress, bodycon dresses. Taiwan was going through massive industrialization. China was very different than the China of today. And Korea was actually going through uh, student demo strikes. So it was a very sort of interesting time, but it was my first time, you know, being in Asia beyond the theoretical or what I saw in museums or, or read in books. And it definitely still was as interesting as I always had thought it would be. It made me do realize though, certainly I can't study all of Asia and do anything effective or have a career. That's sort of like, yeah, it's a little bit of boiling the ocean. And I decided to focus on Japan because I was under the mistaken idea that Japanese language was easier. I learned later that was not true, but I learned more words easily when I was in Japan. And also, even though it was very comfortable, because obviously it was a very thriving economy and modern society, I felt like whenever you scratched anything just to the surface, there was always something unique that was Japanese. It wasn't particularly Western in any real way. And I thought that was uh, really fascinating, even at the young age of 15. So out of college, I studied Japanese studies, it took a long time in college, but finally graduated. And in 1998, still before many people were born, maybe, I uh, came to Asia and to Japan specifically. And um, my first job was actually in marketing because I didn't want to go into English teaching, which a lot of people did. So I found a job in marketing in a medical devices company. And then over time transitioned actually into HR, went back to school, got my MBA. My first HR job was actually with IKEA Japan and then Google Japan. And then I had been in Japan for 20 years and my husband was retired, so he was mobile. He could go anywhere in the world and he had not lived outside of Japan. He's Japanese. 
And so we decided to come to Singapore. And I've lived in Singapore for five years now, first with Google Asia, or specifically Google Singapore, and then transitioned over to specifically GoToFinancial, which is an Indonesian-based company for the last two years. And that's me. Incredible. What a journey. So now we know why you went to Japan. Why HR? That's a great question. I learned in the first company, Medical Devices, that things don't interest me so much. Products as such. Mm. People interest me a lot. They also drive me a little crazy some days, but that's another story. I think because I have a passion for it. But I realized in my first job that I really only got my motivation when it was around people. And it was either the external people, which is marketing to customers, because medical devices is actually much more customer-based marketing, since it's much more things like study group and educational courses and that kind of, of marketing than particularly pure product marketing like Coca-Cola. And then obviously internal people, which is employees. How do you get the best out of them? And how do you motivate them? And how do you recognize them? And also how do you keep hold people accountable? I actually felt that my HR at the very beginning of my career wasn't very good in my company. It was uh, more personnel-like. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn because it was a long time ago and those people are not there anymore. So they probably will not hold it against me that I say this. But it really made me reflect a lot about what would be a better way. Mm. And so that made me decide when I started to think about my career more long term, not just, hey, I got to Japan. Hey, I have a job in business. Now I'm learning the basics of business and Japanese business culture. But what do I want to do with that then? I decided that probably HR was the right way for me. That was probably what motivated me much more. And so I made the transition. And from that moment onwards, it was all about people, obviously. People. <laughs> People, but you know, interesting, and you probably know this as much as anyone is. HR is about people, processes, people, approaches, people, organizational structures, mm. um, various things that mm. enable that. I think people often mistake, you know, what does HR really do? And either they think of it's things like payroll and leaves and that kind, you know, and hiring and training courses, which of course there's a part of it that is that. Or they think it's like, oh, I like people. You know, I want to grow people, <laughs> you know, a sort of thing. And it's like, actually, HR is not necessarily the ones that grow people. And actually, HR is the ones that deal with a lot of the, the heavy stuff, the problems around people issues or, or initiatives or challenges. So it's not necessarily the fun part of people sometimes. So it, that really part is really much more the frontline manager and, and the leaders themselves that do that kind of interesting work. And it's HR that supports that, how to do that you know, more effectively, hmm. how to structure things in a better way, how to think about leadership development or succession planning so that we have the right capabilities in the organization to grow people and to grow leaders, to do that better and better over time. Incredible. So that obviously leads to the next question, which is, okay, if it's all about people and many times the not so fun side of people, what are some of the differences that you've seen in the markets that you've worked in, right? So you've been obviously heavily exposed to Japan and then there was uh, Singapore and obviously you spent quite a bit of time in Indonesia in your last role. 
What are some of the difference culturally in the way that they run companies and the way that they think about human capital that you've seen and that you could share to the audience? Um, I'm always a little bit nervous with this question because I don't want it to be stereotypical or, or overly generalization. I think my experience for what that's worth is there's obviously a lot of similarities because it is Asia and Asian cultures, there's a broad, wide berth of them. There are some fundamental pieces that are similar, you know, um, more community-based, more high context rather than low context, various aspects of that. So I see a lot of the strains that are similar and often more similar than I probably would have expected. There's a lot of things about Indonesia that remind me of Japan. Hmm. And in fact, there's a lot of things about India, because I've also done a lot of fair amount of work in India, though I haven't lived there, that is actually reminds me of Japan. And on first blush, people wouldn't necessarily think so. I find where the differences arise is you do, when you're working in business, people often try to segment out business as a separate thing, right? Like, you know, there's business and then there's real life, <laughs> you know, like your personal life. There's business and then there's culture. There's business and there's society. And of course, I think nowadays people are sort of challenging that in various aspects. And I would say one of the things from an HR perspective is history of countries, demographics of countries, culture of countries that come out of those histories, those demographics, those sorts of very political events, various other events actually really do inform things like labor law, inform things like business practices. For example, Japan has never been run by an outside power. They've never been a colony. And a big part of their history is actually protecting their borders from the outside, but to protect that sort of sense of you know, internal integrity good things and bad things about that. But that obviously has impact onto things like their internal systems, their processes, their laws, having more, how do you say, more longevity than maybe necessarily other people. They're not necessarily been impacted by British influences or other influences. You know, for example, there's a lot of countries in Asia that have been British colonies or Dutch colonies and have that history, right? and what those things do in terms of mindset and thinking. So for example, my husband is Japanese. Uh, I lived there for 20 years. People are often surprised that I don't hold a Japanese passport. Well, if you know anything about Japan, you will understand you know, in a more deeper way about the history, the political dynamics, the demographics, what have you, you would understand the Japanese, the idea of, of a Japanese person is a much more closed concept than for example, maybe, Singapore that has a very different history of how it's developed and evolved, right? And so those things interplay with each other. And I think as an HR person, and you think business, you might necessarily think those things have an impact, but learning more about the countries that you're working in and the more longer history of those countries, the demographic of the countries, for example, Southeast Asia is very young populations, mm. more mm. often than not, and clearly Japan is not, right? It has one of the oldest aging societies in the world. So that impacts things like hiring, impacts things like the leadership mean average, it acts, impacts things like the talent progression and succession planning. 
And when you're in a young country, that obviously impacts things like work expectations, sense of when, you know, their expectations around when they would get promoted, their expectations towards a company in terms of their career path and their cycle, and also what the attrition rates would be, how long someone would stay in the company, etc. So those sorts of aspects I find you really have to understand, like try to start to learn the broader context that you're working in, not just the business context, because it gives a lot of color and it gives you a lot more depth to understand beyond the sort of catchy phrases or generalities that people often say, like, I have to admit, I don't think are all that hopeful. Like Japan is blah, blah, blah. Indonesia is blah, blah, blah. Well, if you know more, then you can understand the nuance and do much better. So I feel like that's the difference I've incurred. That's true of each country is similar, but that what is that unique piece of that history, mm. the demographics, et cetera, really helps you as an HR professional to be better in those in the markets that you work. Super interesting. And it sounds like there is a lot of connection between the culture that a company is trying to build and then the culture that they're in. And maybe there's something so uniquely wonderful about being a little bit of an outsider and being able to study it because it's not just normal. You mentioned something about high context versus low context. Uh, that's probably something that's very familiar to you, but maybe you can share a bit more about you know what are those differences. If I remember, is the guy's name Edward T. Hall? It's something Hall. <laughs> been so many years since I've studied this, but it's a body of work and there's some research about high context and low context cultures where the lower the context culture, the more explicit you need to be in the communication. So it's more direct, it's more explicit, it's more detailed. And then a high context culture, it's about under reading the body language, understanding the larger history, reading people's faces, sort of the sense of you know things through relationships and such without people having to be overly explicit. So obviously a lot of Asian cultures tend to be higher context, though I think Chinese, Singaporean, I think is lower context than probably, for example, Japanese, I would guess, you know, it'd be higher context. The U.S. is relatively lower-ish, but it's not the lowest, actually. And it's a very interesting body of work to read about. There's a few books that are not too overly, like, I just say, academic. Um, and they're not too long if someone's interested to pick up one to learn a little bit about the concepts. Yeah, and that really comes to life in then how people manage their teams and understanding, again, the cultural context. There's something that you mentioned a while ago, and I still remember that to this day, which with my bad memory <laughs> definitely says something which is that HR can only sow the seeds. Can you expand on that and kind of share with the audience, you know, what, what you meant with that? It was a part of a larger conversation. It's okay that you don't remember. I'm the same about bad memory, so uh, it's okay. But my team members who have been on my team, they'll laugh when they hear this if they listen, is I often talk about HR is that it's like gardening and that you can plant the seeds, you can use fertilizer, whether it's organic or it's chemical field, I'm not picking a side. Whether it's, you know, you can try to get the right sunlight, the right timing, the right amount of water, but there is an art or a right timing to things. And the thing about HR is you do not have good direct control more often than not. We are not frontline direct control business roles. 
We are supporters, we're enablers, we're challengers, we're advisors, but we are to the side to make things work. And as such, people have, they have their own timing. You know, there's their own timing for topics. There's their own timing about themselves. Um, you can bring the research and the data. You can give the voice of the employee. You can talk about the risks in the market, the risks in the law. But you still cannot force people to do things on your timeline. And often in HR, with either myself or my peers or definitely my team members, they go, I told them about this last month and no one listened to me. And now they suddenly are asking me about it, you know, and they're very frustrated. And I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. But that's the thing is that when you're tending your garden and you're planting your flowers or your vegetables, you know, in the back of the package, it says this will bloom in April, you know, early April or whatever, right? Or late June or whatever that is. But the reality is, is it might bloom in a week. It might bloom in a month. I've had people come back to me 10 years later and go, Renee, you know that thing you said? I remember that. And it made me so upset at the time. And now it's so helpful. It was so impactful. And hopefully for most people, it doesn't take 10 years. But the reality is, is you will have those in your life and in your career. In HR, there's a lot of that. So you have to mm -hmm. be able to lean into that and think about how do you influence and that you, how do you leverage the larger, you know, how do you leverage data? How do you leverage the qualitative as well as the quantitative? How do you leverage the head as well as the heart? That means what do they want to achieve, but also what do they want to avoid? Mm -hmm. You have to leverage beyond yourself. Sometimes the best way to land something isn't through you. It's leveraging someone else to say something similar. And that maybe you can do a more of an ecosystem of influence. But I remember very early in my career, I had, I was struggling with my manager. I won't say who. And my president at the time had came up to me and said, Renee, you have to manage your manager. And I was probably, I don't know, 29, 30. And I thought, what a load of crap. Why do I have to manage him? You know, just get him out of the way and do it. Let me do it directly. And I thought, oh, and I was so frustrated. And then three years, maybe less, I was in a different situation. I was managing someone. And the words, of course, came back to haunt me <laughs> like a bad ghost you know, which it was like, I'm just in a different position in the organization. But I was literally telling my own team member, you know, utilize me. I mean, I said it differently than my president did back then, but I realized that it was like, look, I'm a tool. My job is to support you. But if you don't use me effectively, I can only go so far into reading your mind or understanding the context. I will try my best, but sometimes I'll get it wrong. So, you know, leverage me in an effective way and let's discuss and figure out together so that we do that better together. And I realized that that idea of manage your manager in his gruff kind of surly way was true, whether it was me to my manager or my team to me, and that there was wisdom in that. And so it's another one of those gardening pits where there was a seed that planted even in me. And I went back and went, ugh, he was right. And I think that there's a lot of those in life. And there's certainly a lot of those in this work, for sure, because mm. you are dealing with people. And it's not like a product where, you know, 
you have a mathematical problem and one plus one equals two every time. People have their own context, they have their own history, they have their own agendas, they have their own blind spots. And it takes sort of timing and art and such of when they will sprout or not. And the reality is sometimes there are also dead seeds. And that just is what it is. And you have to surrender that control and realize that, you know, maybe, you know, it didn't land right, or maybe you weren't even right, you know, and something else will be better. So I think you have to just sort of both try really hard in this work, but also realize when it's the time to surrender that sort of ultimate control of the end point. Hmm. You can put hard in the effort, but not necessarily in the outcome. So it sounds like there was this uh, incredible sort of transformation that you had to accomplish in people where you said, hey, we're not here to directly influence the majority of how people will experience working in this company. We really have to do it through the people that manage them directly. And when you share that to me, when you explained that to me, it was also very insightful because I still thought that a lot of the big themes that we're hearing about when it comes to you know companies and culture and employee experience, that it gets done by HR. But obviously, most of the employee experience you have is with your manager. So if we flip that, Right, so clearly you had to reset some minds in the HR teams. When we flip that, what can managers do to tap into more of that knowledge, more of that understanding that the HR team may have? How can they tap into that resource better? Yeah, first and foremost, the role of manager is hard. I would say one of the hardest jobs someone takes is when they're the first time as a frontline manager. You're suddenly standing you know, in front of people and you have this sense of I'm in control and I'm in power, but you're also you know, standing in front of people and you take the heat of those responsibilities. It's your on the line. You're also sitting between you and another layer. So what do they expect of you versus what your team expects of you? And there's a lot of things to challenges to traverse and pitfalls and almost nobody's really prepared for that fully. And so I would say one is you know, get the, the support you need from HR. First of all, you kind of need to be able to have enough reflection to understand what it is, what support you need to ask for. You don't necessarily have to have the answer of what it's going to look like, but you do need to have a sense of where do you feel like you're struggling and where would support or advice or direction or programs or what have you would be helpful. So there needs to be a little bit of reflection and there needs to be, a, with it, a, to be honest, a little bit of honesty, a little bit of vulnerability. Often leaders are not comfortable with that. Managers don't feel safe saying that they're vulnerable, even though they absolutely must be. And then being able to be curious and to talk to their HR to say, hey, here's the things I'm struggling with. How can I think about it? Where, what are the rules? What are the processes? What has worked before? You know, what programs might there be? Are there some frameworks that I could be leveraging? Because often the reality is, as though it might seem very fluffy, there's a huge body of work out there in multiple areas, depending on whatever it is that you're struggling with with people, and experts that have the ability to support you with it. They can't do it for you and they can't give it on top of you, but they have the ability to engage with you to figure out how to deploy mm. it best. And obviously right now, one of those topics is distributed work, remote work, hybrid work. We see a lot of managers struggling with this. We see a lot of companies struggling with this. You know, how can HR teams best support managers and what 
are things managers should be thinking about when it comes to managing teams that they may only see once or twice a week or even less in remote companies? What are some things that they can do to make sure that you still get everything out of your team that you want, all the potential? I did. So the interesting when I was working in Google is they do a fair amount of research within the, the company itself that would normally be done in like some, you know, in more like a university. They have this people analytics team and, and some really incredibly smart people that work there that do body, you know, to do research internally and have come out with some great work out of that. And one of the things that they did do that I got to be a very small part of um, because I just happened to work in the same office with the woman who was running a big chunk of the project because she was in Japan was about remote work way before the pandemic, six or seven years ago. And less about remote work and it was about distributed work. So yes, not so much that you were fully remote, but it's very common in many big multinational companies around the world when you're not in the headquarters office that, that you're not sitting with your team or you're sitting with your manager. So you might still be sitting in the office, but you're like, for example, when I was in Google, I sat in the office, but I never actually sat with my team for most of my career. And so you had to figure out how to build relationships and what it, the data really came down to, which is you have to invest time and effort. It's one of those remote or distributed work ways of working just means all the things that you probably feel when you sit together more so. You need to take a bit more conscious effort to try to get to know people you need to build out time in your one-on-ones to say, how is their day? Where are they stuck? Is there anything going on if they're comfortable that they might want to share? What are their working preferences or styles? How do they want to be held accountable? Because accountability is a manager's job. But you can have a conversation about that accountability. And if there's a way that what the manager is comfortable to give, then the employees their needs and to figure out a compromise. Setting out those sort of investing in those conversations, building out those expectations, in some ways carving out those frameworks so that if and when things sort of derail or issues come up, you just go back to those and go, okay, so as we talked about, these are sort of what I expect, but I also want to be there for you. Tell me what's going on. How can we traverse this? I think those are the things that work, and it's true whether you're one day in the office or three days in the office. And honestly, even if you're 100% in the office, often you're not sitting next to your manager all day, every day. There are those jobs, of course, but they're less and less as we're dealing with knowledge workers. Uh, clearly my work, the companies I work in, it's almost non-existent, those kinds of jobs by and large. You're very much independently moving on your own. Even if you're at the office and I'm at the office and we're sitting in the same building, I'm in one meeting room, you're in another meeting room, we're barely at our desk. So the still sense of you have to carve out time for your team and people management is a part of your role and how do you engage that is still something we often as HR have to really engage our leaders to try to emphasize. And we have to do it honestly at the top because a lot of the senior leaders, the more and more as they get senior, they do that less. Because they have super competent people, they don't invest in that so much. Those people are sort of more autonomous, but they need to be able to do that still because 
actually those people in my experience engaging with them actually are still have questions about their career development and wondering their guidance from their own leaders and managers and what they expect despite if they're a VP or not, or even an executive VP, even a president. And with that, it also role models to the rest of the organization. So you're missing out on a potential, say, to say, here's sort of the framework that I want you to cascade down through your organization. Um, If you're expecting that you can just talk about it, and then somewhere around in the middle of the organization, it's just going to suddenly appear and cascade down, not necessarily. Right. It almost sounds like there's two things there where in very senior teams, you kind of expect that the people under you do really well and they're not going to reach out for help proactively. And then if you don't model it there, then it doesn't cascade down in the organization. And everyone kind of feels like, well, my team seems to be doing well, so I'm not going to go out of my way to ask them the questions. And like you said, you know, spend more time, spend more effort. It was everything that we were supposed to do before already, but now even more so. I think one main thing that we hear remains, like you said, People management is a part of your job, but for most managers, especially first-time managers, young managers, it's just something that kind of like was added on top of doing their own work and they don't have the time for it. What would the experts say? What is a way to still manage people well, even though you feel like you don't have the time for it? Yeah. So I would say two things. They're a little bit tough love, so I should apologize for that in the beginning. But one is you just have to carve out time. But, you know, the reality is you can say that about a lot of things in life. It's hard to eat well. It's hard to get exercise. It's hard to get enough sleep. All the critical things in life that you know will make you more productive and more successful and also healthier and happier are the very things that we put on the back burner more often than not because we have habits that have gotten us this far in life. And though they're going to start to break us down at some point, either professionally or personally or both, we don't often prioritize those because our habits are so ingrained. And I would say what got you to manager will not get you to senior manager. Hmm. I often quote you know, Marshall Goldsmith's book, this the title, because I love the title, What Got You to Here Won't Get You to There. It's such a good book, but just the title alone is so powerful and is so true in so many things that you have to learn to reinvent yourself at different stages of your life. And so you have to be able to learn how to break habits and reform new habits. And some of that is you have to make time for your team. How much and how you do that is a learning process for everyone because I'm not gonna try to simple, you know, downplay that some organizations really don't give much time for that aspect and probably do layer on a lot of the IC role, even in the manager role. But the other piece is, is, yes, that's probably true, but there is a piece of also many people who are strong individual contributors when they become a people manager keep acting like an individual contributor. They're an amazing salesperson and they become a sales manager. Instead of thinking about how do I create 20 great salespeople, that's my job now, they keep acting like the best salesperson in the team and everybody else needs to come along and catch up and I'll support you. Yeah. And there's always that risk of, you know, hey, it's quicker to do it myself than to explain it to you. And therefore, you don't become a good coach and you're not really getting people in with you and it doesn't become a shared mission. This is the probably one of the most difficult transitions that people have to make. And usually organizations don't seem to be supporting people particularly well in making that transition. It's kind of, you know, it's handed to you and then you sort of have to deal with it. 
Yes, yes. My very first company, I saw very close up hand, a close sort of, in Japanese, you would say senpai, sort of a, a mentor of mine that struggled with that. She was incredibly strong, very capable, deep expertise, but she'd been expert at so long that when she got her first manager role, huge challenges for her to shift. And that was very informative for me.、Mm. And yet, even with that information, the first time I became a people manager in Google, struggled. I'll be really honest and vulnerable. I had horrible people manager scores. It really shocked me. And, and I, I had some tears. And learning how to shift my style and not jump in and try to solve everything. Because I had been a, like a buddy and a mentor to so many people, I had thought that that was you know, what would be so different. And the dynamics are dramatically different when you're suddenly the manager. And so, learning how to take the feedback, painful or not, and figure out how to adjust my style was a great, painful, but great learning curve. And I think that that's yes, organizations can do more to support you, but. But even in the organizations that don't do it, don't use that as a, too much of a reason because there's ways to still do it yourself. There's still ways to, to try to, if you know that this is something you're struggling with, face it on, head on, figure out, or at least try and practice of how to make that better. Because organization or not organization, if you figure out how to improve that in yourself, for yourself, and for your teams, You'll be able to carry that skill set further in your career longer term. And so it will take you far. We could talk for hours more. Actually, I have so many things already that I have like noted questions, follow ups, and whatever. So we'll have to make a part two at some point. Um, so, just to close out, if there's one thing that you would love to tell the world or share to the world or teach the world, what would it be? And it would fit on a single billboard. Yeah. In all reality, I think my billboard changes over time. So, I do think I probably have scattered through my life multiple billboards. At this point in my exact life, I'd say my billboard would say consider, act, reflect, reiterate. Let's say it again. Consider, act, reflect, reiterate. Perfect. I feel like if we had people live with us, we could say this as a mantra <laughs> and then all the way <laughs> until the end. Renee, beautiful sharing. Thanks so much for being here today and、uh, definitely look forward to that、uh, part two. We'll link your socials in the show notes so people can look you up and follow you on your journey. And again, thanks so much for being here today. <laughs>